Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Art Artist Business. My name is Jessica Rorchik, and I am here with the legendary Ronnie Orbach. I'm going to call him Ronnie. Oh. <laughs> um, Ronnie, it. he has a very <laughs> career as an actor on the stage, in film, television, and with voiceover. He's worked on Broadway, off Broadway as a comedian. His most memorable screen performance was the driving instructor in the epic film Clueless, which is one of my highlights. He's also appeared as a guest star in numerous episode roles from L.A. Law to Law and Order, Golden Girls, Girls, and uh, also has a huge, incredible resume as a voiceover artist uh, on the Disney Channel and much more. So welcome, Ronnie. So lovely to have you. Thank you. Thank you, Jessica. (laughs) I appreciate being here with you. Me Um, too. Me too. So so I'm going to just make one clarification, which is I am not, nor have I ever been, a comedian. Oh. I am an actor who's done a lot of comedy. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think of myself okay. as funny. Um, <laughs> and and I, I, I've even played a comic at some point in some play along, along the way. Um, but actually my connection to comedy is, is, is interesting. And I know you're, I feel like we're on a talk show and, you know, you planted, I planted, uh, you know, all the questions that I want you to ask. Yes, yes. Yeah, I try so, to do that. <laughs> so I, because I, 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 I knew we were going to talk about this. So um, in the mid 70s, when I was, I was living in New York City, driving a taxi. I had just gotten back from drama school at ACT in San Francisco. And I was trying to start my life and I was getting nowhere fast. Um, I was taking an acting class and, um, and my sister, who was also a singer, was working as the hostess and assistant manager at the Improv in New York City, the Improvisation, which was the first comedy club in America. Right. Okay? Amazing. It was, it was the place where you would go to see Lenny Bruce and, you know, uh, Mort Saul and people at the earliest beginnings of, of what we now think of as stand-up comedy. Um, and, um, but in those years, um, my sister was... Hello, hello, hello. Hello, you're back. Oh my god, we lost we lost you for a second. It was a glitch. I know. I know. Okay. That's okay. This is the beauty about this. We can we can edit. So take me back, take me back and and all right. (laughs) So anyway, so as I said, I it was it was 1975, 76, 77, those years. Um, Saturday Night Live had just premiered the original Saturday Night Live. So Belushi and and those guys were coming into the club to sometimes go up and do a set or do something. Um, uh, uh, Robert Klein was there all the time. Um, uh, prior uh, Carlin. Oh, wow. 
uh, but also the people that were getting their starts were the Seinfelds and the wow. uh, Larry, the Larry Davids, the the uh, uh, Paul Reisers, um, Bill Maher. Uh, all of those people, that generation, was just sort of starting at that point. Um, and I was, um, you know, uh, I was in acting classes. I would, was doing off-off-Broadway stuff, but I was getting nowhere. And there was a comic that I, be I became friends with a lot of the comics. And one of the comics named Rick Overton, uh, was he had like a, a you know, a, an audition for a, a sitcom. And of course, I wasn't getting any auditions. At this point, I had no agents, no unions, nothing. Um, so he said, uh, you know, I got these sides. Would you read with me? So I read with him. And after I finished, I gave him a few, you know, a little feedback. You know, I coached him up a little bit. And he was like, oh, my God, thank you so much. It was so helpful. You know, you should really do this. I said, well, you know, speak to some of your other comic friends and uh, maybe we'll we'll put a class together and eventually we did um so i had a class wow. at one point um in around in around maybe 1979 1980 and paul riser was in the class bill maher was in the class um uh, uh I mean, that's miller there's some, there's some, uh, I mean, that, that would have been a pretty fun class. You've got, <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was Bill, Bill Maher, Bill Maher was the worst student because all he would, all he ever, ever did was make jokes. Like people would be there like, you know, on the edge of some like beautiful emotional breakthrough moment. And Bill would in inevitably make some funny joke that would, I mean, it would destroy us. We would all be on the floor. Um, but he, he never took the acting very, very seriously, which is mm -hmm. no surprise. Um, whereas Larry Miller, who went on to do a number of, uh, Christopher Guest films and is a wonderful actor, uh, Riser, of course, also has done wonderfully. Um, uh, and so, you know, it, it was nice. It was, uh, it was for about six months or a year. Um, I was working with them. And I was at that point a baby Larry Moss student, you know. I I had which of just course begun, is where we met. We met at Larry, which is where where Jessica and I met. Um, uh, so you know, it was um, it was a very um, vital and wonderful time to be the age that I was, and you know, and so uh, even though I wasn't a comic, I I I felt like a kindred spirit with the comics, mm -hmm. I, I, I connected with them and I, um, I eventually um, went on to my first series, television series, the only television series um, I've ever done is called Platypus Man, uh, which was centered around a stand-up comic by the name of Richard Jenny. Richard Ooh. Jenny, who at J-E-N-I, who at the time was like, the top dog on the road. He was the, the, the biggest road comic going. He was making huge money on the road. Um, but he was always, you know, uh, frustrated because he didn't have the, the sitcom like Seinfeld and uh, the other comics that were getting. That was what was happening at that time mm. was you, you got on The Tonight Show and then you got your, your 
your sitcom. Um, and anyway, so he finally got his, and I was sort of his Jason Alexander on that show. You know, I was the sidekick. And, um, and it was fun, and it was fun while it lasted. But mostly, my job was to coach up Richard, because oh. he would, he was uh, uh, dependent on me. He, once he knew that I, you know, that I taught and that I, um, you know, was, had that skill of being able to break down a script and help him to make choices and stuff, he became dependent on me. So we would finish shooting at, you know, four o'clock in the morning on a Friday night, which a new, a new show always does. Yes. If you're Cheers or you're, or you're you know, uh, one of the, you know, uh, more, I can't think of a modern, like, you know, modern family, if you're one of those shows, they usually probably shoot now in like three days or four days. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, because they're like a well-oiled machine, but a new show like we were, they're, you know, they, they shoot five different versions and endings and because they're unsure of them, themselves and, so we'd finish at four o'clock in the morning at five o'clock. I would get my first phone call from Richard. Did you see next week's script? Oh my God, it's a nightmare. We have to fix it. And immediately he would start pitching me jokes and asking me, so is that funny? What do you think? Is that funny? And alternately talking about how frustrated he was because he loves, loved this girl, this girlfriend, and he would, be in therapy about the, and, and I would keep trying to uh, uh, push him to continue in therapy because he was one of these guys. And this is part of what you learn being around the comedy world, mm. especially then, because it was almost exclusively a boys club with the exception of, you know, Elaine Boozler and Carol Liefer and Carol Siskin. There were a few girls, pa Paula Poundstone came up later, but at that time, it was almost exclusively a boys' club, and he all he he would say he all he really cared about was getting a laugh and getting laid. That well. was it, <laughs> and it, and he was totally clear about it. Yeah. You know? Um. But he he would struggle between like wanting to be a really good person and really do the right thing, and then wanting to like you know fuck porn stars. You know, right? Well, which, you know, which, which is so um, significant, really, to the times, isn't it? Because yeah. I mean, it was such a different world back in the seventies and the eighties, and especially in New York. You know, you see about. I yeah. mean, I find it fascinating. I'm such a history buff, and you know, in um, in the school, in 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 our um, in our in after we really delve into a lot of like history and theory of film and television because I think it's so mm -hmm. important to understand the way the world was, the way the industry was, the shows that came before, the comedians that came before. So I'm loving hearing this because I think it gives yeah. such insight as to how we've grown as an industry, but also, yeah. you know, just like the people that have paved the way before, you know, and how they Absolutely. paved the way and what was, what was sort of important to them. Um, I love that you bring up um, all these great people and names, because like, as you know, I'm always, I'm asking my question, which we were having a bit of a laugh with before the show started. And you were saying, yes, all these people you wanted to have dinner with, but I would really I love to hear because you've, you've been able to work with so many great people already. I'm like, who yeah. haven't you met that you would love to, that we'd love to have dinner with and talk. Well, I mean, mine are going to be probably 
thinking about it, you think, well, you know, Chaplin and, you know, uh, uh, but then I started to think of sports figures, you know, like, like Sandy Koufax, the, the, uh, the great Jewish uh, pitcher for the Dodgers. Uh, you know, I mean, these, these are like iconic figures, you know. And then after I chose my three people, I thought, oh, I didn't pick a person of color. And I suddenly felt very, I felt very, I'm like, I must be more racist than I, than I think, you know. Um, uh, so I got very sad um, uh, because, of course, you know, there were so many people of color that I would also love to have dinner You know, with. you get your two after party, Matt. You get your two after party. Okay, but, all right. Yeah, so you right. can, I mean, and so, I was going to say, so my, you know, if you're, my, you're hanging around with Richard Pryor in the day, that would have still been like... The, the, right, but the, the, the two people... That, that came up first when okay. I wrote down. My, the first person is um, Randy Newman. Mm -hmm. um, Randy Newman, the songwriter, composer, um, just is, to me, the, he's the greatest songwriter of all time. Um, and, and he, his music, um, you, you know his music from all the many movies that he scored everything from, you know, the natural to parenthood to uh, all the Toy Story movies. Mm -hmm. um, everyone knows his music, you know, but he has the ability to just, uh, in ragtime, um, a few strains of, of his musical scoring can uh, uh, bring me to tears uh, because mm -hmm. he, is, he is like the heir apparent to uh, um, Copeland and Gershwin as far as music of America, music of, of the American soul, you know. Mm. Um, he's so deeply rooted in blues and, and rock and, uh, but also, um, you know, more lyrical kind of um, standards, uh, you know. Um, and um, anyway, that's one of my one of my guys, um, and he was Jewish. Not that that's why I picked him, but I like that he's he's Jewish. And then there's another person um, that I love, um, who is um, Gene Wilder. Ah, uh. and Gene Wilder to me is um, everything that I have you know, that I strive for as an actor, particularly as a comic actor. Mm. Um, uh, because Gene could be wonderful in non-comedic things. Most people don't know that because uh, most of his, um, you know, body of work is, is comedy. Comedy, yeah. That's what we, we know him for. But um, even in his comedy, there is such pathos. Mm. He is always so um deeply authentic um when i when i direct a comedy uh one of the scenes i i always show uh you know the first week of rehearsals is the the opening scene from the producers between uh zero mustel and and gene wilder the famous blue blanky scene where he he goes Hysterical. He says, "I'm hysterical. I'm hysterical." And you're, you're, and you're punched. Don't be. Don't punch me. Don't hit me. And you, you don't jump on me. And he gets completely, insanely 
like a, a five-year-old with a bl with a blankie, and um, and it breaks your heart, you know, because he's so true, he's so authentic, um, and um, that runs through all all his work. Um, and when you see the man interviewed, of course, he left us recently, but when you saw him interviewed, you saw in that face the um, how delicate, how fragile he was, how human he was, you know. And of course, I love the fact that he ended up with Gilda, uh, that we, she became the love of his life. And because uh, she's definitely somebody I would, I would invite to an after party. Um, she was such a, and again, I don't, I don't mean to keep pe pe picking Jewish people. No, I don't. People, you, listen, but, but, you know, this but, you is know, your space. This is your time. And this is the thing. It's, it's, it, it's, art is so subjective. Um, listen, I'm a, it's so subjective. I'm a Jew from, from New Jersey. <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm a Jew from you New are. Jersey. You are. You definitely you know, and, and I grew up, this, these are the people that I grew up admiring, you know. And, God, um, and, 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 you, and they're freaking great people, I think. I think and they this are. Is, and, they are. And, you know, my first Broadway show, um, as, as many of you know, um, was uh, Neil Simon's Laughter on the 23rd Floor, which was Neil's Valentine to Sid Caesar and your show of shows, which was the first important uh, writing job that Neil had in the early to mid uh, 1950s on, uh, on television. And Sid Caesar, which was of course this legendary, um, again, similar to how I think of myself, which is why it's funny that I ended up playing him, um, a comedic actor not somebody that if you said here tell these jokes he would have failed miserably he would have been nervous and self-conscious and all that but as a character as a comic actor he shined and if you go back and there are you can you can get them on netflix uh there's one called 10 from your show of shows they're you know clips from all the best uh of his work and you see oh, all brilliant. the the foreign language doublespeak and the um, the genius things that he did with Carl Reiner, who we also oh, just lost. I know. Um, but I mean, you know, so I get this job and I'm playing on um, the, uh, and I was an understudy that also ended up getting bumped up after my, the guy I was understudying got fired. So my first Broadway show was totally like, you know, like Ruby Keeler in 42nd Street. I was my big break, you know. And so I'm playing Ira Stone. Ira Stone is the character that Neil Simon based on Mel Brooks. Okay? Wow. Okay? That's my Broadway debut. I'm playing Mel Brooks, who was a complete hypochondriac, egomaniac that everybody on the writing staff hated because <gasps> he was he was Sid's so favorite. Great. This is such great. I mean, I'm a huge Mel Brooks yeah. fan, so I'm of course I live for a bit of gossip. Yeah. So this is fantastic. Egos, yeah. which well, well, you could you could Mel, kind of see it though, really, couldn't you? Really, oh, yeah. that's not surprising. Mel Mel was such a so naturally gifted that he became like Sid's little like mascot. He Sid he he could do no wrong. He got away with things that anyone else Sid would break their neck, and Sid was was famously 
strong. You, you know, the, there's a moment in Blazing Saddles where Alex Karras punches a horse. I don't know if you remember that moment. I do. But, but Mel based that on Sid because Sid actually did that. Okay. Wow. Okay. So these are little things you're learning. Um, yes. So it's a so lesson now, in comedy. So so I, I I open on Broadway. I meet on opening night Sid Caesar and Carl Reiner and some of the other writers from your show shows were there. And it was uh, it was an amazing triumph. All right, eight years later, I was cast as Franz Liebkind, the Nazi playwright, in Mel Brooks' musical version of The Producers on Broadway with Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick. Wow! What? But here's so now, after playing Mel Brooks in my first acting job on Broadway. Now yes. I'm in Mel Brooks's show about, which is also related to his most famous movie. I mean, well, the, the producers, even though Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein did much better as movies uh, at the box office, everybody's favorite, of course, was the producers. Mm -hmm. uh, if you were inside, you know, show business, et cetera. Um, but I end up blowing my knee out no. in, in tech, out of town, famously um, in Chicago, and um, uh, never made the Broadway transfer. So, um, so that was, was kind of sad. Um, and, you know, and I always talk about these two events in my showbiz life because it's sort of the yin and the yang, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, you you know you, you get the big break, you open on Broadway versus you get the big break, you open on Broadway, and then you lose the biggest hit ever on Broadway, and your career goes into the toilet. Except it didn't. It only well, went into the toilet it, 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 briefly. briefly. Briefly, but you know, but it's it's so funny that you talk about this because this actually happens. Like, I mean, we've I speak to quite a lot of you know, obviously educating actors, and we talk to them a lot about this because this is a bit of a different world in in to like listeners at home in Australia, actors in Australia to actors in the yeah. US. And I say to them, you can think you've got a job, you can come, you can book a pilot, you can show up, you can table read, you can get that far, and then they go cool, you're done. Yeah, <laughs> it's just it. like that. And if, yeah. if a joke doesn't land, if something isn't there, and I think this is great, this is such a lesson in comedy, but it's the small details. So it's like if something, it, it can be over that quickly and it doesn't matter how far, um, you know, yeah. and I've even heard of, uh, you know, ideas where people are getting, they shoot the pilot and it just doesn't work. And then they will literally reshoot the first episode and they would have already oh, yeah. recast you. So yeah. it's, it's incredible. Yeah that that happens i think that's that's such a such well, a it is you know it's the it's the perfect segue into saying that as fun as it is to talk about all these things the thing that i teach that you know i got from from larry from all of all of the best people that i've ever had the good fortune to encounter in our business is that the work is its own reward oh and that, i love that and that there's really, there really isn't anything else. You know, the, the, all the, the, the rest of it is, is lovely. I mean, I'm, I'm not kidding you, you know, that, to get a standing ovation on Broadway 
to to you know uh, know in your bones that you're you're in a scene and the, the audience is roaring and that you're you, you have compl complete sense of of power um, a, a joyful kind of power that uh, about where you could you could take it how far you could take it um, uh, those things those don't get old. I, I'm not going to lie to you. You know, uh, I still love acting and I still love, an, an, you know, uh, uh, being able to you know, tell a great story with a great team. I mean, to me, there's, there's nothing better than that. Um, but the joy is in the discovery of something about the character mm. that you then employ and it works in front of an audience that night after you rehearsed it for an hour earlier and you didn't know, you didn't know before the curtain went up whether it was gonna fly or not. It might just fall like, you know, a flat as a pancake, but you get out there and you try it and it works and it works based on all of your your planning and your investigation and the trial and error the work that you put in and to me that satisfaction is it never that never gets old mm -hmm. I, I i you know i love it now more as a teacher and as, as a director in terms of how i can help someone else you know a uh, uh, sort of catch lightning in a bottle and and uh, you know but that 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 experience only comes from having your focus so deep inside the work so fully concentrated on what am i doing and why am i doing it and what do i what do i want to get from this person how can i get it better how can i what can i do better to get it what could i do what what would be more interesting what would be more surprising what would be less predictable you know all those things that go into building a performance or building a a monologue or a scene that's that's what excites me you know if i find out you know i mean how many times have i said to another actor this is pretty inside stuff yeah. The best part, the best part was getting the gig. Yeah. You got the gig. Woo! Oh, fuck. Now I got to do it. <laughs> oh, fuck. Oh, now That's I got to, right. now I got to, now I got to rehearse eight hours a day for the next four or five weeks and go through all of the stress, the self-doubt, the, the, um, uh, uh, anguish sometimes as well as the joy hopefully as well as the joy you know Let's well hope. the roller coaster you you get yourself on 
this roller coaster. This is, what I, this is this thing. I mean, I feel like if everything, if everything was always perfect and easy, I'm not actually sure that actors would really enjoy it. I think, like, I think it's a secret inside that we actually quite enjoy going on this emotional yes. roller coaster ride of, yes. of and a variety of feelings. And I, I mean, this is something that I'm constantly trying to um, make all our actors that, that we teach aware of. You know, it's like emotions are the best part of what we do. That's why we do what we do. We get to have, you know. 10 emotions a day and, 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 yeah. and love that and know that that's part of what we can do. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's great. It's, it's, it's exhilarating. You no, know, we, we are, we are, we are lucky. We are lucky that way. And that's what I, that's what I tell my actors. I say, you know, especially my beginning actors, you know, um, every day, every day you have to cry. Every day you have to laugh. Every day you have to get angry. Every day you have to experience your fear every day mm-hmm. just not because i said so but just because if you do it every day it will get easier and easier for you to access it mm-hmm. and that's what we do that's what we do we are emotional sales men and women right that's <laughs> yeah. what we do you know what do you got what do you need today you, you need joy you need pain what do you need i got them all you got and, it all and you can't have more ease or comfort with oh i'm not in the mood for my anger i don't feel like getting angry today i'm i'm Mm. I'm too no shut the fuck up you have to be angry because tennessee williams requires it or whoever whoever it is that you're doing you know you bring up such a great point because this is one of the things we definitely talk about as well and actually you bring up two great points that i'm going to delve into but one was definitely we talk about the daily self versus the artistic self and this is actually one of the things that we sort of delve into and in saying that your artistic say, self say, say it again the daily self self versus the artistic self right so Got the it. daily Got self it. has the ego that comes in i don't want to do this i'm not in the mood i have all this stuff going on like i'm not good enough i've right. got all this stuff i've just had a fight with my partner i've just you know i'm struggling for whatever whatever's going on and this is the thing that gets in the way of doing the work and what we say is when you're stepping into your artistic self or actually one of my incredible creative directors in the program i mean i can't claim this as my own but this is definitely what she teaches and i am adopting it in huge capacity um and her name is emma fleming and she's a fantastic acting coach and i feel like i'll get you two together have a ramble you guys will get along very well but um she speaks about it and she said when she was training in new york again i think it's a new york thing it's 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 like just an energy about it they would create space for her to literally like they would create this imaginary door and she would have to step into this artistic space and in this artistic space it was imagination there was freedom there was all that stuff all that daily stuff gets left Mm -hmm. behind there because when you enter there you just go in there with with no pressure on yourself just the ability to be present and the ability to 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 let yourself experience whatever you're experiencing and go through all those emotions and enjoy it as part of the this acting process and i think as i'm hearing you speak this is something you are inherently doing from way back when just going no you've got to do it because this is just part of what we do and having access to it and exactly like you said if something goes wrong in a day and you have a show you don't have that luxury but it's funny because sometimes i hear actors say things like but we're not in a show we're in a class and i go ah no that is exactly the time when you need to be doing it because the class 
is the rehearsal. The class is the exploration. The class is, is the, is the discovery. You know, you don't learn to drive a car for the first time with no one else in it and get yourself in and then just start driving down the, I'm going to make a joke, LA joke. Yeah. Start driving down the, (laughs) start driving down the, the freeway um you just don't you know you you have to get in the car you have to get some driving lessons you have to get you have to get accustomed to understanding what you're actually doing and know and know where you're going on the road and and that is kind of why it's so important to do this that is why this exploration is so important so i love that you say that i love that you say that um and but i also the second point i was going to say is that i that you Mm. totally sparked in me I think you bring up such a beautiful lesson in comedy too, because I always say, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this. And then I'll also come back to your third person. Cause I still want to hear who your third person is, but yeah, they say that if you can do comedy, you can do anything. Whereas it's yeah. not always the other way around. I'd love to hear your view on that. Cause I think comedians are some of the best actors in the world because of their access to emotions, just like that. I think there is truth to that. I, I think that, um, you know, as I've gotten older, I've, um, I, I, it may be the natural, um, you know, uh, sort of way things go as you get older, but I, I think oversimplifications are, are, are dangerous. And uh, so I don't want to presume um, that um, if, if that comedy can't be taught mm. or that um, if you, you know, are shut off from your vulnerability, Oof. that, My that, 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 that can't be accessed. Mm-hmm. I think it can be. Yes. Um, I, and, and I think that in, in some ways, these two things are connected mm. because I think that when people connect to their own vulnerability, they get funny. <laughs> they have the ability to get funny about themselves. Yeah. And that's where comedy begins. You have to be able to laugh at yourself first, don't you? Ah. Uh, you know? Yes, I, I, I'm, I'm living okay. for this. Because this is my so, favorite word. So, Vulnerability is my favorite so word. So if, 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 uh, if we were working right now and I, and I just, you know, uh, suggested something to you and and it brought up you know your eyes got full and you started to and you were maybe working on the monologue and in the in the middle of it i i might stop you and say how do you feel right this second jessica and you would Ooh. say good good, good. yeah i feel good, good. Feeling, i'm loving this yeah like I'm, like, like nervous excited so, yeah. so like <laughs> you know so 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 in other words, you're, 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 you're pretty talented, Jessica. I was going to say, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, I was actually going to yeah. go with you then too. I was going to say, yeah, I'm nervous, excited. Like I need to go to the toilet. <laughs> so I was going to go, saying, I, was, I was leading, letting you lead. What I'm saying is that authenticity yes. is so important uh, in any kind of acting, obviously, but especially in comedy because we can we can spot a lie some mm. we, we we know when somebody's forcing you know trying to make something funny and it's based on because they wrote a clever line but they're not necessarily embodying the line with the with 
enough truth to, to anyway, for me to make me want to come along and, and laugh at it. Um, so, you know, yeah, sometimes it's the writing, but often to me, it's, it's in the delivery. Um, and listen, I, I, I'm going to go back to the improv. I'm going to tell you two stories. Yes. Please. Um, one story was about Andy Kaufman. You know who Andy Kaufman was? Of course I know who Andy okay. Kaufman is, yes. Well, Andy was in his heyday in, in those days. He was, he was doing Taxi and he was appearing on Saturday Night Live and, you know. And he came into the club and other people probably know about this because it was a thing that he did every so often. He came into the club late on a, you know, it was maybe like a one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning uh, on a weeknight, like, uh, or like when, when there were maybe, you know, 20 people in the room, not, not, it was the more towards the end of the night. So he, he got up and, and was kind of a treat for the people that were there. Um, uh, but he also was, was able to remain kind of in, incognito. A lot of people didn't know who he was. Oh, yeah, that's the guy on Taxi, you know. Anyway, he starts to do 100 bottles of beer on the wall. Okay? And now, he starts doing it, and he's doing it very kind of uh, energetically and happily, and but non-expressively. Um and it's kind of odd and people are tittering and he gets through the 90s and he gets into the 80s and he's still doing it. And by now, people are starting to go, well, what, where's this going? Where's he going with this? You know, and he keeps going into the 70s and the 60s. By now, there are comics, mostly only fellow comics in the room with some stragglers. But you can tell that some people that are in the audience are starting to almost get angry. They're starting to look at, you know, all right, we get it. They're almost like openly heckling him, right? And he's getting almost more and more monotone, more and more boring, more and more almost intentionally boring in how he's doing it. And I'm just like staring in abject admiration and horror at both the bravery, but also the, and this is why I never became a comic, the willingness wow. to, throw, to throw yourself off a cliff. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. To risk, to risk everything. Well, finally, around the 60s or 50s, he starts doing, he starts doing it as Elvis. And then, and it's brilliant and hilarious. And then he does it with a French accent. And then he does it with an Italian accent. And then he does a Spanish accent. And then he does other different characters are coming in. He does it as Latka. He does it and he keeps going and it's funnier and funnier and funnier and everybody is screaming and roaring that by the end of it, and he went all the way down to one bottle of beer on the wall, 
you could have carried him out on their shoulders. That's, that's how triumphant it was, okay? But it was a lesson to me in the willingness to fail, the mm. willingness to be boring, the willingness, you know how, um, I'm sure if you've ever done any Meisner, if you've ever done the, yes. you know, the repeat exercise. The repetition, absolutely. Idea, right, you have to be willing for it you to do. just be boring. It has to be totally, and often when it gets to the place, when it gets really completely boring, now you can begin, that's when you start to find something, anything, right? You, you laugh at your own ineptitude or you laugh at the other person like standing there like a lox saying the same thing. Something comes up eventually and then you sail uh, the seas of open-hearted creativity, right? The other story was a comic you might not ever have heard of named Mark Wiener. Mm -hmm. Mark Wiener uh, was famous for Mark Wiener and the Wienerettes. And what were the Wienerettes? The Wienerettes were little uh, stick figure dancers that he would have in a little box, a little black box, and all the lights would come down into a pin spot on the black box. And he would have little costumes on his fingers. And he would be like, break dancing, which was very kind of hot at the time, and or doing different disco songs of the moment and, and, and doing weird things, spins and stuff with just his hand, right? And people went apeshit for it. It was a big, <laughs> big hit. So, so anyway, but Mark wanted to break free of being only attached to doing the wienerettes. So, you know, a set was usually 20 minutes. And so he would do the wienerettes for the, the, the second 10 minutes. But in the front 10 minutes, he would just freeform. He would just try to get up there and, you know, just see what he would come, could, could come up with. Mm. So it's, it's around probably one o'clock on a Saturday night, which is packed house, right? Can't get a seat. And he is bombing. He is just dying. Um, I always love the words of comedy. You're either bombing or dying or you're killing. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know? But yes. it's, all around, it's all around death, you know? Um, but anyway. Laugh or so, die. Laugh or die, right? That's what they say. That, Laugh or right. die. That's it. Yep. That's right. So anyway, I'm watching and I'm, again, churning inside from what pain he must be going through. He can't land a joke. He's flop sweating. Um, people, you know, glasses and spoons are being, you know, all you hear are the noise of that and coughing and just, you could cut it with a knife. And finally, he looks around the room, the room with the most woeful, sad look on his face. Oh. And he looks up and he says, I don't know. I used to be funny. And the audience exploded. I mean, exploded. Like the biggest laugh I've ever seen in my life. And in unison, it wasn't even a question of was it funny? 
because it was so to the bones, honest. He was completely saying the truth, which was, mm. he was at one point, he, he, was, he was a good comedian. He could get a laugh. He could, but in this moment, he was not. And so he just told the truth. So those are the kinds of moments that I treasure, that I got from, from being at the improv and watching people go through the process and risking uh, that much. Um, and sure, succeeding a lot as well. But, um, you know, Larry David used to get up and he would, he would say one line. And if the audience didn't laugh, he'd walk right off. Wow. He was completely, he was completely um, judgmental of the audiences, which was why he eventually stopped doing stand-up mm-hmm. and became, you know, the brains behind Seinfeld because Jerry was so much more comfortable being a front man. And, <laughs> On the stage and, doing that. And, oh, he was just so much more at ease. Yes. Whereas which was, for Larry, it was, it was much more uh, of a personal vendetta, <laughs> you know, for him. <laughs> Get it right. Oh, yeah. so, that's so incredible. I love that. I love that you're talking about these are things that we, we really sort of hone in on, but I also, it's just like they're words that I love, you know, truth, vulnerability, you know, like it's just, they're can't so, in, you, you can't, it's, it's the essence of, of being, being an actor and being, and I love that this is what you're saying too, is the essence of comedy, because I think you're so right. And I've never even really had a chance to look at it like this before, which I think is just well, such a think insight. Of, if, if you think of all of the best comedic performances mm-hmm. you've, you've ever seen, Truthful. you know, if you, if you think of, of Chaplin, I mean, I mean, he's the ultimate yardstick. I mean, the pathos in so many of his movies in City Lights and, uh, uh, you know, even Modern Times uh, or, or The Great Dictator, you know, mm-hmm. you, see, you see this, this, this human presence um, and and his uh, so often his comedy is is not mean spirited. It's it's sweet and silly and goofy and and you know um, uh, kind of dear in a way. Um, it's only as we've gone on in years uh, that now every comic has to get up and and every third word has to be fuck. They have to they have to drop the F-bomb every other word because people only laugh by being shocked now. You know, it's, oh. it's humor has uh, gotten to the point, um, except for the best. Listen, the best of the best can still write a joke that's clean and hilarious. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I don't take it away from them. But I'm just saying that in our current zeitgeist it seems that um uh, there are too many that will take that easy road easy way out yes um, and think thinking that well i i shocked them so and and, there, and again that goes back to andy kaufman you know as long as you're compelling you don't necessarily have to be you know, like Neil Simon getting, you know, three laughs every page, you know, you have to, like, it's almost like it, 
it becomes non-formulaic. Mm -hmm. If you're interesting, if you're compelling, if you have something to say, I'll give you another one. Um, I'm on a roll, what can I say? Uh, there was a, a famous guy by the name of Uncle Dirty. And Uncle Dirty was um, a brilliant, very funny comedian. Used to open for the Grateful Dead and Bob Dylan and people like that wow. in, the, in the 70s. And he was, he was always tripping. Um, but anyway, so always on acid. So that <laughs> he was always on acid. <laughs> he was famous. And he had really, really long hair. And, and in those days, in those days, no, not when I, I knew him. Oh no, you know. it's great. It's great. So, so he his thing was he would go. You know, when there used to be a dial phone, you need the visual for this. You know. Oh yes, like the the circles. Right? That, yeah. They, and he'd say, "Hello, is your mama home? No, foo foo poo poo caca." <laughs> Click. Okay. That was the level. That was the level of Uncle Dirty. God. Dick jokes, tick jokes, defecation jokes. That oh was it. God. All right. But then he would start to talk. And he'd say, but people, you got to understand the, the military industrial complex. You got to understand what's going on here, man. And he would go very deep into philosophical theorizing and all this. And then he would start to lose them. He'd bang right back into a dick joke. He'd get them laughing. And then he'd go, but people, you got to understand, he'd go right back to his agenda of talking about what he wanted to do, what he wanted, to, how he wanted to affect people, what he wanted them to be thinking about, what was important, like all the great comics did. I mean, Lenny, Richard Pryor, the Carlin, who I think is the greatest of them all, because of his genius as a writer, um, and, and and Robert Klein. I mean, all of them. There, you know, uh, oh, Dave Chappelle. If you want to go more more modern, um, yeah. uh, um, you know, they're they're about making you think. Yes, they're about making you, uh, you know, at pointing out hypocrisy, and and um, and and hopefully. Uh, you know, some of the gentler ones like Larry David was all about just observational humor, you know, um, who, you know, gets laughs from odder things like, you know, the old Seinfeld things of, you know, uh, mismatched socks in, in a laundry, you know, that poor sock. I, you wonder what, you wonder what he's feeling, you know, um, things like that. I'm, I mean, there's a lot of room between, you know, the comedy of nothing and the comedy of, you know, blood, sweat and tears. But, yeah. um, but hopefully, like with any theater or film or art, um, you know, there is, um, whether it's a message or a point of view or, you know, you know why, why have you brought us here tonight, basically, you know? Why, why am I sitting in this seat? Why did I just pay a hundred dollars mm -hmm. or whatever I paid? You know, give me a reason to feel good about spending that money, you know? And all it takes for me is making me laugh, making me cry, making me think, making me look at the world in a way that I, I hadn't maybe previously considered. Um, it doesn't take much. I'm not, I'm not that, uh, that tough of an audience. I'm actually, 
I'm a, I'm, I, I become an easier and easier audience. I'm less and less judgmental as I get older because I know how hard it is. Yes. You know, I always think, I always think of Mike, Doug, Mike, uh, Mike Nichols, um, who famously said, it takes four hours of rehearsal to make one good minute on the stage. <sighs> think about that. Yeah, no, I know. I just took that in. That's why I took a lovely deep breath <laughs> on that. I took that right in. Yeah. But so true. So true. Yeah. But I mean, do you, you don't, that, that doesn't, that doesn't, you, you don't find that daunting, do you? No, I actually find that quite uh, endearing in a weird way because for me, the, re the rehearsal process is, like I said before, it's the classes, it's that, it's the discovery. It's everything. It's, it's the everything. exploration, it's the fun. You know, it's, yes. it's reminding, you know, I think where is a really important part of, of what we do, at least the way that we think, and, and certainly I'm hearing it today, is just reminding actors about the fun not about the result, about the fun no. in the work. Because there is, there is a reason that we're drawn it's to the it. And there's joy. a reason that we, that we want to do it. And so if we, if we really take that, that idea of this, you know, results kind of, you know, that, that, that everything I'm doing has to have a result. No, the result is in the work, the, 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 the result is not about the job. The result is actually in the feeling you get from the class. It's how you feel when you're going through the process, you know? Yeah. I mean, that, yeah. that was kind of, you know, I think that was where I definitely, even I know we did Larry and you saw me, but I had such a breakthrough in that class because I was yeah. reminded of why I do what I do, you know, yeah. why? And it was like, oh, it's just the pure enjoyment of affecting other people and moving other people and being vulnerable in front of other people and how powerful that actually, that whole experience was. So and, that, I, and, that, and, and that not only is it powerful, it's enough. It is enough. You don't need anything more. It is enough. That's all you need. You know, um, I, I, I was thinking about the great, uh, there was a great golfer named, Sam Sneed, and uh, somebody asked him, well, do you have any advice uh, for me? If an amateur golfer said, he said, yeah, hit with your practice swing. I love it. Hit with your practice swing. So just do, when you get into performance, do what you're doing in rehearsal. That's all you gotta do. Because so often what happens, we get up in performance and we start tightening and and we we don't trust as much we think oh let me let me let me just pull that in a little bit more or make it a little more performy or something or, I or don't what know. or what we think it needs to be you know what yeah. we think somebody's going to enjoy you That's know right. as opposed to just being there oh couldn't agree with you more um so we're we're almost out of time but i before I leave, I do want to hear your third person because you know so many people. I feel like we could just do oh. we okay. could do story time with. I think this so should be like a weekly show. <laughs> no, I'd love to love to talk with you. Story time, story time I with could. Ronnie. Um, but I do. I want to hear it because I want to finish. I'm I'm such a you know got to finish at three. So so I was thinking of I had to have a woman, you know, and not only that I had to have a woman, but I wanted to have a woman. I wonder because if I love women I'm thinking of, but yes, go. And I was thinking of all these women, like, you know, like Mae West, uh, uh, you know, women. And then I was thinking of today's women, like, you know, like sexy women that I would, 
fantasize about, like a Penelope Cruz or oh. or uh, or Jennifer Lawrence or or uh, uh, or even even somebody like uh, um, you know uh, 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 Gilda Radner. Oh yes. Um, but the woman that I wrote down first was Jean Arthur. Oh. You know Jean Arthur? No, I don't. So I'm curious. Please tell me. This is going to um, be another good okay. story. I can feel it. You remember the, remember the movie Mr. Smith Goes to Washington? Yes, I do. Okay. Well, she's the woman in that. She's right. The, oh, my the, gosh. Of course. She's the, she's the, the, the reporter that Jimmy Stewart meets and yes, who basically yes, of course. shows him the ropes in Washington, but really is taking advantage of him for her own benefit until, until later she, she, you know, confesses and, and they end up together and everything. But uh, Jean Arthur was one of those actresses of that era, like Barbara Stanwyck was another one. Uh, certainly Betty Davis, no, they pretty. were they were tough broads. Yeah. They were sophisticated, mm -hmm. smart. Mm -hmm. They didn't ever take um, men. Never got the better of them. They they always stood their ground, and were funny, and usually had the guy running in circles. You know, um, and I always think of Gene Arthur in that film. Um, because of how how sweet she was, yeah. She she had has that a kind of a foggy like a like the female um, Mel Torme. She has that velvet fog of a voice um, that's very sexy bedroom kind of a bedroom voice that I like. Um, and and even though she's not necessarily like you know overtly sexual um she was very sexy to me um and and um well it's intelligence it, intelligent women intelligent women yeah. are yeah and and how it relates to now is that in working with some of my female students i'm trying to help them to have role models of yeah. females that you know even back in the days before women's liberation, they were plenty liberated, yes. plenty standing up for themselves, plenty, um, you know, full of temperament, you know, which I find so often um, that frustrates me for women a lot um, that they've been so subjugated and, um, uh, brainwashed in many ways into um you know being the being objectified yeah. being being there to please a man being using male yardsticks to judge their own value or worth and I, I, which i think is is heartbreaking you know um and you know so rather than uh, you know, be better, be more male at succeeding than men. So you succeed more. Why not 
succeed in the way that women do. Well, this is Why well, not? this is the thing. There's such a there's a there's I mean, God, this is a whole other conversation. But um, yeah. yeah, but I I love it because you know femininity. I'm is I mean, it's such a it's such a important word. But I feel like for many years, and even as a woman, it's been like a it's almost because it's it's a boys club, as you say, you hear it, but it's been a boys club in nearly every industry for so many years. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and it's been, a, and you know, still and, is. and still is exactly. And so for us, it's like this word of femininity is in some way seen as a weakness, whereas femininity is the vulnerability and it's strength. It's the reason we have incredible female leaders right now around the world. It's, it's the reason that women are standing up and making absolute incredible strides of, of change. I would like to say that I consider myself one of these women that is going around trying to say, Hey, I do too. we don't, we don't need to do this anymore. This is not the way that the world needs to be. And um, so I love that you say that. And I do, I think that there have been women, many, many women that have come through the years that, that have had that. And, and it's, you yeah. know, I think it's so important um, for us to identify, you know, that that femininity comes in all forms. I think that's the way I'm gonna yeah, say feminine and, uh, comes in you all know, forms. In in the same way that nowadays there's an expectation from white people that we stand up for our sisters and brothers of color, and and uh, you know that if you're not anti-racist, you know you're not you, you then you're racist. You have to because you're not helping to fix the problem. And I think it's the same in terms of men standing up for women. Yes. I, I, I really feel that. I, I, uh, uh, I think, you know, I was blessed to have strong women uh, around me growing up um, that I respected. Um, but I, I think um, I've seen the other side of it, which is how abused women can allow themselves to be or not even allow because they have no choice. Well, you don't, you know, you're, 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 it's, it's become a thing for women to feel easier being smaller because, because of the, because the loud voices that are toppling them over. But the reality is there is, um, this is the time I think now for anyone that's ever felt small. Now is the yeah. time for the small, small to actually stand up to the large and for us to actually have what I'm really hoping we're going to create is a world of more equality, you know, a mm -hmm. world where there is no large and small, you know? No, no, where we're all different. We're just we're all, all just different and we all have a different journey apples, and an experience. Apples exactly. and oranges. Yeah. And what an incredible friggin' note to lend <laughs> to end on. Um, listen, Ronnie, <clears throat> you are brilliant and fantastic, and we've loved having you. you. And um, I am really excited uh, to to see what ever else is in the future for you. And I know that it, whatever it is, it's going to be fantastic. And um, if our listeners are out there, do, do you have social media that people can follow you on, or you know, find you if they're I mean, looking for I'm, a great comedy acting coach? I, I, I'm on Facebook. You can definitely find me there. So, so uh, private message me if you're, if you're interested in, in that, uh, or just say hello. Um, I don't, I don't do Twitter. I don't do Instagram. I'm, I'm a pretty much of an, of old an school. old dog when it comes to that, but, um, but, but I definitely am, you know, interested in, 
in connecting and, you know, especially nowadays when we all are starved for connection more than ever. Um, but you're a complete pleasure. It's a joy to talk to you. Um, and uh, I do hope that this is only the beginning of a, of a wonderful association. Absolutely. Me too.